Good morning, Harvest. Good to see you this morning. And uh, we're going to be in Colossians 3, as Nathan said, uh, verses 18 uh, through to the end of the chapter. Actually, we're going to dip just into uh, chapter 4 and look at verse 1 as part of this section. And I'm going to get you just to do a little quiz with me for a second, a little fill-in-the-blank thing. I'll give you a phrase, you fill in the blank. Good? Oh, boy. It's not, it's not starting out well. Here we go. Um, there's no place like, there's no place like home. And the apostle Paul apparently knew this to be true in terms of character development. There's no place like home to develop your character. There's no place like home to show that you're a genuine believer. There's no place like home to apply your faith. There's no place like home to live out the gospel. And if we're being honest, we want to be honest here this morning. If we're being honest, home might be the hardest place to be a Christian. Home might be the hardest place to be a Christian. Well, we're in Colossians 3 here, and earlier in the letter, Paul had compelled his readers. Uh, we looked at this a couple of messages ago, but it's applying to this whole section. He compelled his readers to put off the old self with its practices. So put off your sinful self as a Christian. You're ridding yourself of sin. And to put on, he said, this is uh, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, and to put on uh, the new self, which he then goes on to describe in terms of seven virtues. And we looked at those seven virtues, and he didn't even leave us just with the virtues, but he told us the means by which we can put these virtues uh, into play in our life, to grow these virtues. And all of this with the premise that we've actually made a profession of faith in Christ and are genuine Christians. That has to precede it all, that Christ is our Lord and Savior. Well, in today's passage, building off of all of that and, and kind of finishing off this section of the letter, Paul applies all of this to our home life by looking at three household relationships. And I'll just say that these are three household relationships in first century Rome. A couple of them apply to us, but one of them doesn't. It's going to be important for us to remember that. But he's going to talk about the husband-wife relationship. He's going to talk about the parent-child relationship. And then the one that doesn't apply uh, to us precisely is the master-slave relationship. We're still going to be able to draw principle off of that. But these three relationships, Paul argues, are the proving ground for our faith. All three of those relationships are, are, are seen in the context of the home. Even the master-slave relationship happened within a first-century Roman household. And these are the proving ground for our faith. And how we function in these relationships says everything about what the Apostle Peter, if we can borrow from him for a second, what the, what the Apostle Peter called in 1 Peter 1.17, the tested genuineness of our faith. And I love that phrase. It's in the home, these virtues, what it means to be a Christian, that's where we're going to test the genuineness of our faith. And to pass the test, that you have to see these gospel principles that we're going to see, we're going to see these gospel principles play out in our lives through these examples, so that truly we can say there is no, no place like home. And so let's look at the text together. This is Colossians 3, we're starting at verse 18. You follow along. Wives... Submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. All right, from all of that, uh, here's what we want to distill in all of my relationships, I must apply the gospel principles. 
Now, having read that passage, you can see, as soon as we say, wives, submit to your husbands, you can see that Pastor Todd will be navigating a minefield this morning as we work through the Scriptures. And I would say, we're going to navigate the minefield, but y'all are just going to sit there and watch me walk through it, and you're going to hope I make it through. I certainly hope I make it through. But we're looking for these principles. Off of each one of these six examples of relationship, we're going to see a principle that's going to pop out, and we're going to apply that to our relationship. So the first one is submission, illustrated here in verse 18 with Paul saying, wives are to be submitting to their husbands. We'll come to that in a second, but he says this, he tags this on the end of it, it's so important, he says, as is fitting in the Lord. And it's curious when you go through this, how often that, that phrase comes up, how often he, he invokes the Lord as he's talking about these relationships. In fact, six times in the verses I just read, he's invoking the Lord in this passage. And one might conclude from that, if in a short passage the Lord just keeps coming up, one might conclude from that that the Lordship of Christ or His authority is underlying all of this. One might conclude that, you know what I'm saying? That it's Christ's authority that's underlying all of these relationships. Now back to the point in front of us, submission. We can't escape the idea, we cannot escape the idea that in Christian marriage, the wife is under the headship of her husband. It's inescapable. That's not a culturally sensitive thing to say, is it? Not in the current culture that we live in. And it's especially not culturally sensitive if we fixate on the submission part. In other words, we just stop at verse 18 and we don't read verse 19 and understand what it means. If we fixate only on the submission part and we don't hang in there for the second principle of husbands love your wives and see how the whole thing works together. So don't miss this. When we start talking about a wife submitting to her husband, this is so important for us all to hear. In no way, in how many ways? In no way, in no ways at all, in no way does submission mean that the wife is inferior. It does not mean that the wife is the husband's doormat, that the wife is a husband's slave. It does not mean that she can be oppressed in any way. It does not mean that she can be ignored. It does not mean that she's not involved in decision-making in the marriage. It does not mean that she is fair game for abuse of any kind. It does not mean that she is compelled to do what is wrong. Submission does not mean any of these things. And in fact, if you look at the greater context of Scripture and, and the prevailing ethic, the greater ethic of Scripture, everything that is said about marriage, every example that we see of marriage, both negative and positive, all of it shows something far different than what the opponents of biblical marriage might say by feminists and by woke activists. Biblical submission is not oppressive in any way. And what we're seeing here is, is Paul is, is, again, using these examples as, as, um, as a way of conveying principles that apply to all of our relationships. So it's not exclusively about a wife to a husband, but it's about how are we submissive in our relationships. As much as... Uh, as submission is a struggle for wives, and it must have been a struggle for wives, otherwise, even in the first century, 2,000 years ago, we think, oh, you know, wives have become liberated, wives are, are more assertive now, wives are more equal in the marriage, and we use all these phrases, and we think that this is some kind of 20th or 21st century problem that we're solving, and the reality is, if Paul was writing it to Christian, uh, Christians in the first century, it was a problem in the first century that wives were struggling with this then. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been there. It's a struggle for all of us. In all of our relationships where we're called upon to submit or, if you don't like that word, to be subject to, which is what the word means, and the application of the gospel here goes beyond wives to any relationship where submission or being under the authority of someone else, someone else is, under, is in play. 
So we can't just sit back and go, well, I'm not a wife, so this doesn't apply to me. The principle applies. It applies in the workplace. You must be subject to, you must be submissive to your boss, your company, whoever you work for. In society, we are subject to, we are submissive to our government, the law, the police. As long as they're operating under the law, we should be operating under the law if it doesn't violate Scripture. In the church, we should be subject to the elders. The Scriptures are clear on that. As members of the body of Christ and part of a local congregation, we're to be subject to the elders. You say, well, that sounds so hard. Well, I just need you to understand that there's one person in our church who's more subject to the elders than any other person in the church. You know who that person is? Correct. This guy. I mean, y'all don't have to meet with the elders every two weeks like I do. Have to be there with them and, and, and give an account for how the ministry is going and how we're fulfilling the vision that the board sets. I'm submissive to the elders. You know that the elders are submissive to one another. One of the beauties of biblical governance is that it's set up as a plurality. So there's a, there's a number of elders who are giving governance in the church and that those elders are subject to one another. There's no one in the church that isn't subject to someone else. And so the question as we get going into this is, first of all, this issue of submission, are you growing in submission in these relationships as an application of your faith in Jesus Christ? I hope that you are. I hope you're growing in that. But let's, let's just park that one for a second. Let's talk about the second principle, because these are all like little pairings of relationships. So we've talked about the wife. Let's talk about the husband. This is the second principle of, of love. Men, are you ready for this? Yeah, that's, a, that's what I expected, actually. I'm not saying anything. Second principle is that of love. And this is obviously, this is love. I mean, this is a universal principle. This doesn't apply simply to husbands and wives. It's a universal principle. It applies to all of our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship to all the one another's in our life, our relationship to our neighbors, our enemies. After all, the first and greatest uh, commandment, Jesus was asked the question, what's the first and greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was building off of what had been said in the Torah and the Old Testament to the Jews all the way back. The second commandment is like it. Jesus said, is to love your neighbor as yourself, is to love those other people that are in your life. But then, of course, we think, um, and, and he addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount, some of you uh, say, you know, love your neighbor but hate your enemy, and I'm telling you, love your enemies. So Jesus elevated the whole thing and said, now you got to love your enemies. Love is really a foundational principle for all of this. The Apostle Paul picking up on this, you know the passage in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said the big three are faith, hope, and love, and he said the greatest of these is, it's love. And then here in the letter we're studying in Colossians, just a little earlier in this chapter, of course, he had listed all these virtues, six virtues, and then he lists number seven, and he says about that, and this is in chapter 3, verse 14, above all these other virtues, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is a universal principle. And husbands are being centered out here because this tends to be, for a majority of men, a, a, a bigger struggle in their life. It's harder for men to show love. Now, I'm not just saying that. It's built off some research and, and writing on this. And some of you will be familiar with the book, Love and Respect, written by a man named Emerson Egriches. And he argues in his book, Love and Respect, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you four statements that are the essential premise for the book, and they're paraphrased out of the book, and, and I'm going to give you a lot, and it's, gonna, it's, it's a ton of material in a very short period of time, four quick statements, but there's an entire book written about it, and there's a video series that I think is available on Right Now Media, and they do conferences on these four statements, but I'm just going to throw them out there and let them hang in the air. So he says this, Men more naturally respect, but struggle to love. And by the way, he's using the word respect because in, in Ephesians 5, which we'll look at in a moment, in Ephesians 5, 
in the, in the same kind of passage where he's talking to, to uh, wives and husbands, he uses submit first and then respect second for what a wife should do with her husband. She should submit to her husband, and then he says she should respect her husband. So that's what he has in mind. That's what Paul has in mind and what Egrichus is pointing out. Men more naturally respect but struggle to love. Women more naturally love but struggle to respect or submit. Now, because of the sin nature that we bring into marriage, and we're all bringing our sin natures into the marriage, wives tend to react in ways that feel disrespectful to the husbands, thus the command to them to respect or submit to their husband. You following this? Here's the second, the other side of it. Husbands tend to react in ways that feel unloving to the wife, thus they get the command to love. Again, there's a ton in those four statements, but really, Paul is simply addressing what happened to be the particular sin issues that husbands and wives each face in trying to have this marriage relationship. So, verse 19, husbands, here's the positive command, love your wives. I know that's hard for you. I know that's the struggle for you. Your wife really needs it from you. So, the command comes, it's an, it's an imperative, husbands, Love your wives. And then he says, the negative thing is, okay, I want you to do this, but not do this. Do not be harsh with them. And clearly there was a sense that, that husbands in general were being harsh with their wives. That word harsh, by the way, one lexicon says that it's, it's, bitterly hateful. it's to be bitterly hateful towards your wife. And one commentator expanded on that and said, this is treating her cruelly because she fails to live up to your expectations. we got to stop that. I mean, I mean, if you're a husband, you just got to stop that. I mean, if you're a regular guy, husband, outside in the world, not having Jesus in your life, he's not your Lord, that's fine. You can, that's just a marriage out there. But once you profess Christ as your Savior, these principles have to come into play, and your marriage needs to look different. It needs to be radically different. It needs to be so gospel-centered that it stands out from the crowd. So what we're, what we're seeing here is this submission-love tandem playing out in Christian marriage, and so much is riding on this, and in our minds we think the thing that's riding on this is our own marriage, and, and having harmony in our home, and, and being happy in this relationship, and that's certainly part of it, but do you know that's like the smallest part of it? It, it goes far beyond that. It's not just about saving your marriage or having a, a, a great marriage so that it's a benefit to you and your home. In the more expansive, I've already alluded to it, but the more expansive passage on this very same thing, same three pairings of relationships, this is over in Ephesians chapter 5. In this parallel passage, the section starts, in fact, before he ever gets to talking to wives and then husbands, same as he does here in Colossians, the, what he says in Ephesians 5.21 is, he, he says, submit to one another. He uses that word submit, and he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes into wives and husbands, children and, children and parents, or children and fathers, and then masters and slaves. Submit to one another in all of these relationship pairings. So, so what we're talking about in, in all of these relationships is the radical notion of mutual submission to one another. Mutual submission. Wives submitting to husbands, husbands submitting to wives, children submitting to parents, parents submitting to children, slaves submitting to masters, masters submitting to slaves. And as we apply this to the husband, the husband submits. Todd, did you say that right? The husband submits? Do you think I said that right? The husband submits? Is that what the text says? Yes, the husband submits by loving his wife. The husband submits by loving his wife, which carries massive implications since 
since we're fully aware, aware of how Jesus, the bridegroom, submitted Himself to death on the cross for the sake of His love for the church. The church is His bride. He's the bridegroom. And she's the bride. He loved her. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That's submission. His death on the cross, His sacrifice, that's the standard. Husbands, if a, if, if, if a bead of sweat is not appearing on your brow right now, then you're not understanding what I'm saying. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's the standard. And the Christian marriage is a picture of the gospel. That's the greater implication. Again, not simply that you're going to have a more awesome marriage that reflects the gospel, but in reflecting that gospel, that's going to have an effect on everyone you know, everybody who's watching your marriage, everybody who watches how you treat one another, how you speak to one another, how you conduct yourself in your home. Even if you have trouble witnessing, even if, if it's very hard for you to introduce people to Jesus, your marriage on its own will tell people about Jesus and about his gospel. So listen, husbands, wives, how are you doing with this? How are you doing with submission? How are you doing with love? You see, there would be, and I think this is the thing that, that, that makes it clearer and and more palatable when we start talking about wives submitting to their husbands. The thing that, that makes this all come together in a way that's so satisfying and so pleasing and that, that we really get it is when we simply say there would be a lot less resistance to wives having to submit if husbands genuinely love their wives as they ought to. All right. Are you a little tired, feeling a little tired now after that one? Move on to another one, principle number three here. By the way, let me just say by way of advertising, um, about a month from now, we're going we're gonna to do a marriage conference on a Friday, Saturday here. It's called Durable Love, bringing some guests in who are going to teach Friday night and Saturday. Registration is going to be open for that next week. So if you're sitting here going, like we don't have that going on and we really need to fix that in our own marriage, then sign up for that marriage conference. It's going to be held right here in the building. And so nice and convenient for you um, information again next week. All right, end of commercial. Next principle is that of obedience. And obedience and submission are like cousins. We've touched on this already with the idea of submission. But here it is in verse 20. Um, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So um, the, the sad reality of our times is this, okay? The sad reality of our times is that all institutions have been severely undermined in terms of authority. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough that I'm, I, I've lived in a couple of different generations. You know, I've, I've seen different things happening. And as I, as I see this in the years that I've lived on the earth, I see an eroding of, of respect for authority to, to where we are today. Government, um, people have far less respect for government. There's a lot of reasons for that but people have far less respect for government. When I think about um, education, I mean, you, you just need to talk to a teacher who's been in the system for 20 or 30 years and, and talk to them about the difference in the classroom between then and now in terms of authority and respect for authority in the classroom. Respect for police, respect in the home, respect for adults in general. I mean, what's happened here is that decades of postmodern philosophy, postmodern influence have eroded what we believe about truth. And because it's eroded what we believe about truth, it's undermined what we believe about authority, destroyed all concepts of authority. Because if there's no objective standard to what's true, if your truth and my truth are different, if, if truth, if it exists, can't be known, because that's a common phrase, then how can anyone actually be in charge of anything? If there's no objective truth, then there's no ability for anybody to be in charge of what doesn't exist. 
How can there be even a, a structure to society in this situation? If, if, you, if you undermine all authority, you remove all requirement to obey. And that's the point at which that's, we're teetering on the edge of that as a society right now. And anarchy, if that's true, anarchy's just around the corner for us. Now, I want to, under this, obviously, this is an instruction to children. So I want to talk to all those in the room who are um, freeloaders, who are still living at home with their parents, and you're just sponging off mom and dad, okay? So I, I don't want to put an age limit on it because you can get into your 20s and still be freeloading off your parents. But there could be some like seven or eight-year-olds in the crowd as well. And, um, you know, you're a freeloader as well at seven. All your food's provided. They bought you a bed. You have a room, they, they, a roof over your head, everything. They gave you everything, all your clothes, your toys. You're a freeloader. Just admit it this morning. So I want to talk to you, um, the kids, and by the way, I just want to say, um, my mom, who was here in the first service, uh, my mom, and she would, she would uh, corroborate this, but my mom said I was a wonderful child. <laughs> That's hurtful. <laughs> That's hurtful. No, my mom would always say, but let me finish what she would always say. My mom would always say I was a wonderful child, and as I remember it, I certainly was. I was a wonderful child, but I was a terrible adolescent. I was a terrible, terrible teenager. And what's so, what's so odd about that is that I came to faith in Christ. I heard the gospel around the age of 14 and was under its influence. And then I, I came to faith in Christ when I was 15. And so my teen years were largely spent walking with Jesus, my first steps of walking with Jesus. And I was terrible. I was terrible to live with. I was a terrible teenager. And so, like, we, we all need to kind of sit up and, and hear this because this isn't just something for a kid who's unrepentant. I was a repentant kid who was seeking to live for Jesus and was super passionate about his faith and was extremely difficult to live with. So, so whoever you happen to be, if you're just at home and under the authority of your parents, like you're living at home and, and taking advantage of your parents' generosity, um, you, need, you need to hear this, that the blessing of God rests on your life with you being in willing obedience to your parents. You're blessed when you obey. And rebellion, which may be stirring in your heart, depending on what age you are, rebellion, rebellion only results in good if it ends at repentance. So when your parents say, and this is something out of Egrich's book as well, when your parents say to you, don't, they put some prohibition, they set up some guardrails or some fence around something that you want to do. When your parents say don't, what they're really saying to you is don't hurt yourself. And the reason why they're saying that is because they know that what you're about to do is going to hurt you. Maybe not now, but maybe later. And I know it's insulting to you. Again, I'm only talking to those who are in that category right now. I know it's insulting to you because I, I, know, I know that you think you're smarter than everyone else. I think that you know, you think you know better. And, and I want to tell you, you're not smarter than anyone else, and you don't even have the intelligence available to you to figure that out. And I want to appeal to some science here rather than just saying a thing. But your prefrontal cortex is not nearly developed enough for you to know that you're not the smartest person in the room. The area of your brain, and this is from the National Health Institute, the area of your brain that is responsible for skills like planning, prioritizing, and making good decisions doesn't mature until you're in your 20s. Now, so, so I wonder if God knew that. I wonder if God knew that when he said, children, I mean, so simple, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And all the parents in the room said, you know, humbly, humbly <laughs> said, amen. Now, the objection, the objection from the kids, because we're working in these, these pairings of relationships, so we've just talked about the kids. Your responsibility is to obey. But I can hear some of the kids saying right now, Todd, you don't know my parents. They're idiots. 
And I can understand that. My parents were idiots. At times, at times, I know, I said that with my mom in the room in the first service. Just like Cheryl and I have been idiots over the years with our own kids. Because parents don't get it right all the time. Parents make mistakes. They make errors. They're not perfect. So yeah, I get that your parents might be idiots at times, but there's some principle. There's a principle here for them. Principle four, in fact, is the principle of sensitivity. And, and moms and dads, are you sensitive to your children? And, and in particular here, Paul mentions fathers. And I know, you know, we want to kind of broaden it out and include the moms, and I get all of that, but I have to deal with the fact that he talks to fathers. Why are dads singled out here and not moms? And maybe it's because of this. Moms are more naturally nurturing. They more naturally love their kids. And tragically, throughout history, the father has played a lesser part in the rearing of children. Now, that's, a, that's an imperial fact. You can prove that. Every study shows it. I, I, I will say this, that in my reading and, and research for this message, one of the things I discovered was that there's t- statistics that show that millennials, who are, who are much maligned, mo- there's a lot of jokes about millennials today. Millennials who are much maligned are the first generation uh, with any data at all that's showing that millennials are actually spending more time with their kids and more time in the home. So, so kudos, kudos to the millennials, who are often the butt of jokes, but not this morning. Uh, you get a little applause. And, and so, so we have, we have um, this matter, though, that throughout history, the fathers played a lesser part in the rearing of children. And, and that's not a good cultural thing that happened. That's the result of the fall into sin. That's the result of this world being a sin-marred world that we live in. Because fathers are supposed to be involved in rearing their children. So Paul says, verse 21, fathers, it's just like negative. It's completely negative. He doesn't even really give a positive command. He just says, fathers, don't provoke your children, okay? Don't cause them, here's the definition of that word of provoke, um, don't make them feel bitter or resentful. And by the way, you can do that by doing things and not doing things. You can do that by saying things and not saying things. There are things you say you shouldn't say. There are things you haven't said that you should say. There's things you've done that you shouldn't have done and things that you haven't done that you should have. Fathers need to be more engaged, not provoking, not making your children feel bitter or resentful, lest what would happen? They become discouraged, lest their spirit gets crushed. A lot's been said about this in a, in a, not a Christian article, but in a magazine called The Walrus, uh, which is a Canadian magazine, a 2019 article. A young man wrote this. He's the author of the article. His name is uh, Jamil Giovanni, and he said this. Um, and this is an article about young men and, and the lack of, of proper role models. So we're going to look at a specific example here, but um, I'll make a comment about daughters in a moment. He said this, recognizing the importance of fathers doesn't dismiss the the importance of mothers in the lives of young men. It's about acknowledging that male role models are important and that their absence has consequences. By the way, you can be in the home and be an absent father. And and Giovanni's story is exactly that. If you read the article and the link's in the notes, if you read the whole article, you're going to see that. That's his story. It's tragic. His dad was in the home, but he was absent. He says there, there, there are also, by the way, this is about young men and the absence of mentors and, and a proper model of what a young man should become, and that is a systemic problem in our, in our culture. But, but this is no less a problem for, for young women. It's no less a problem for young women. And by the way, the dad plays a, a significant role in the development of his daughters. But there are also serious consequences for young women, especially in the area of social media. And social media is doing such severe damage to the identity of young women in our culture and distorting their understanding of what it means to be a woman. I'm going to tell you, like every study shows, dads, 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 dads are so critical in the development of both their sons and daughters. Giovanni goes on to say this, the National Fatherhood Initiative, a nonprofit organization working to end fatherlessness in the United States, claims there is a father factor in nearly all social ills facing America today. 
This bold statement is backed up by research that shows fatherless children are more likely to have behavioral problems, live in poverty, experience abuse or neglect, use drugs or alcohol, repeat grades in school, become teenage parents, and go to prison. The research also shows that adolescent boys with absentee fathers are especially likely to engage in criminal and other delinquent behaviors. That, that, that's, that's terrible enough in a home where there is a father who could do something about that. But then when I think about single moms who are trying to raise boys in particular and the challenges faced with that, and that's why we need the church. That's why being part of a community like this so we can get mentors in front of them, they can be in Harvest Kids and in youth and they can see male role models who love Jesus and can help mentor them and grow them. They can watch other marriages and see how a good gospel-centered marriage looks, what it looks like and how it can change everything about the trajectory of your life. We need that. So the solution here, as it's being proposed by Paul in the Scriptures, what God is saying to us is strong homes built around a father who does what's necessary to not drive his sons and daughters away discouraged. Because when, he, when, when their spirits are crushed by this, what are they going to do? They're going to go outside their home and outside the church to find identity, to find purpose, and to find love. They're going to go elsewhere to find these things. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to very destructive places. They're going to go to drugs. They're going to go to sexual activity. They're going to go to crime. They're going to go to gaming. They're going to be confused by gender issues. They're going to deconstruct their faith. All in an effort to find identity, purpose, and love. If you're not sensitive, because that's the, that's the principle here, is the sensitivity to one, to one another. And we're, we're talking about parents or dads in particular being sensitive toward their own children who are vulnerable. If you're not sensitive to the vulnerabilities that your kids are facing and are more interested in your own comfort and living your own life and having your own leisure activities, then it's time to repent and start with the Lord. You can start right now. And own it before Jesus right now. And then as soon as we're done this service, as soon as it's possible, get in front of your kids and repent. Here's the last pairing. Masters and slaves. The last two principles we see here. It's, it's, it's unusual, again, because we don't, we don't have legalized or institutional slavery in, in the West and it's, it's overly simplistic. I know a lot of preachers do this, but it's overly simplistic and it's, it's interpretationally weak to simply look at master-slaves and say, this is the employer-employee relationship. And, I, and, I, and preachers do that, and I may have done that. I, I didn't go back and look at the Ephesians message when I preached this material because I was afraid I had done that, so I didn't want to go back and look and see that. Um, but, it, but it's weak because the context of, of what Paul is doing here is household relationships, and masters and slaves were together in one household. So this isn't employer-employee, uh, but there is a general, a couple of general principles that we see here that we can apply in all of our situations. This is the important part to see. So principle five is servanthood. Servanthood. Now, we, we soften this, and in most English translations, we soften this by putting the word bondservants into the text. And many of you will have a translation in front of you, even if you have an older version of the ESV, you, uh, uh, you might see uh, a different word than bondservants. The newer version goes to bondservants. And a, a more literal translation, though, if we were taking this right from the Greek and putting it into English, the Greek word is doulos, um, uh, doulos, and, and uh, that word means slave. But slave is an uncomfortable word. And so early editions of the ESV had slave, but then they wanted to make that a little less uncomfortable, so they put bondservants, and you'll see a slave down in the footnotes. So verse 22, this is what it says, bondservants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So you're not going to be the kind of slave that's just putting in your hours, that's just doing it because you have to do it. You're not just doing it to please your master. But listen, you're going to be a slave. Imagine how radical this is in the first century in Rome. You're going to do this 
with sincerity of heart, like with a pure heart, like I love serving my master. Fearing the Lord, he says. Now, what's important to see in this, and people always ask this question, like is Paul supporting institutional slavery in Rome? And and when you look at this passage, he's not supporting the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire, nor is he launching a campaign to abolish it. He's not doing either of those things. He's merely saying, in the existing relationships, where masters and slaves have both come to faith in Jesus Christ and now both find themselves in the church together, the relationship has to change. Slaves have to see their work for the master in a different way. Masters, we're going to see in a moment, have to see their relationship to the slave in a different way. Now, despite what Paul may or may not be saying about slavery right here, let's remember that Paul had a friend named Philemon who had a slave named Onesimus who escaped, and then Paul ran into this guy, coincidentally, and led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And so this escaped slave is being sent back, and Paul writes this letter called Philemon back to his friend to say, listen, Onesimus is coming back to you, but he's coming back not just as your slave, he's coming back as your brother. And it's an illustration of exactly what he's saying here. The relationship has changed. Now, whether Paul, in the, in the next section of this, because you have all these bang-bang statements, just like it's wives, bang, husbands, bang, then children, then parents, and then he talks to slaves here, and it's a, it's a little bit more of a paragraph. And when I first read this, I looked at this and I thought, you know, I think he's, I think he's moving on here to, to just kind of step aside and talk to us in general about what it means to be a servant, because he says a whole lot more here offering some general principles that we can all embrace. Verse 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do. Is, is he talking now to his, his broader readership? Is he saying to all of us, you know, whether you're going to work on Monday morning to work for your company, your boss, or, or you're, you're vacuuming the rugs at home, or you're coming to work and harvest kids here or out in the parking lot, or whatever it is you're doing, whatever, whatever job you're doing, whatever work you're putting your hands to, you're going to do that heartily. You're going to want to do it, and you're going to want to do it in the best way you could possibly do that. Verse 24, why would I do that? knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In other words, what we're seeing is that our earthly work, no matter what it is, our earthly work has a reward in heaven waiting for us. So at the parousia, at the appearing of Jesus, when we stand before the Lord, there's a reward for doing your current Monday to Friday, nine to five job well. Work heartily as unto the Lord. And not for men, verse 20. Uh, knowing that you'll get this reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. The end of verse 24, verse 25, for the wrong, he says it negatively, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And then he adds this at the end, which is so awesome because he's talking, he's talking to um, slaves and masters and he says, uh, there's no partiality. That would just seem to me in a master-slave relationship, there seems to be a lot of partiality to that, correct? The master's in the, in the, in the power position. And Paul just throws this in and says, there's no partiality. It doesn't matter. In the church, it doesn't matter where you land on the socioeconomic scale. In the church, you do what Jesus has given you to do, and you do it all for Him. So though none of us are slaves in the first century Roman sense of that, the principles still hit. What we do in our work, in our volunteer service, we do heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And this brings eternal value to everything we do, all of our work and all of our volunteering that isn't there, that isn't there unless we're actually Christians. And then built off of that, this last principle, he speaks to masters, and, and this is the principle of justice. Just think about this for a second. If, if, if you can step back into the first century and think about receiving this letter and everything that was going on in the culture, everything that was normal in the culture, for Paul to address women and children and slaves would have been no big deal. 
But for Paul to address husbands, fathers, and masters in this way was so countercultural that it immediately sets apart the Christian household as being unique in the Roman Empire. But let me ask you a question, because we live in a culture today that's no less pagan than ancient Rome. We live in a very anti-Christian, at least post-Christian, pagan culture. Most of the people on the street where you live, the vast majority not only don't go to church, it's so far off their radar. They're not thinking about God in the least. That's the street you live on. And you're the oddball because you got in your car this morning and drove away to go somewhere and meet with a bunch of Christians. That's the country we live in now, post-Christian pagan Canada. Now, if you start living out the gospel principles that we're talking about here, that's going to mean that your home is radically different than every other home on your street. And that's what Paul's calling for here. That's why he's calling on husbands, fathers, and masters. It's so radically different. And so it's foolish to say, when we start looking at this, it's foolish to say, in fact, that Paul didn't take a stand on slavery when we hear him say something like this verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Other Roman citizens would, would hear Paul writing this and would go, you're a weirdo. Knowing that you too have a master in heaven. See, see you're someone's slave too. You're a bondservant of Christ. This is radical thinking in that culture. So for Christians who are serious about displaying gospel principles in their relationships, this means that we're going we're gonna to show no partiality. It means treating those who land in a different place socioeconomically, treating them well, treating them with justice and fairness. It means treating those who are from a different ethnic group, justly and fairly. It, it means treating the young and the old justly and fairly, men and women, able or disabled, justice and fairness. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say it in like two sentences. It has the potential to upset a lot of people, but here we go. That's all the time I have left. This does not necessarily mean we start talking about justice and, and people start to get a concept of what it looks like when we start to work on matters of justice, but I'm going to say this. This does not necessarily mean that I take part in a protest or I sign a petition or I wear a t-shirt. It means sincerely engaging in a Christ-like way with people who normally don't fit into our world. And I'll just say this, all these justice issues that we're fighting out in the culture right now, I just feel like for us as Christians, if we would just act Christianly, we would be displaying something far more powerful than we ever could at a protest. Just live out the gospel, and it, it erases all of these lines of partiality that we have set up. And as I was writing this, I, 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 thought, to, I thought of this, this line that I'd heard long, long ago, and it's an old hymn that we don't sing anymore. But listen to this line. Maybe you heard it before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no partiality. And we ought to be living out matters of justice simply because of the gospel. Now, in the end, having looked at these three, these three pairings and all these principles, in the end, what all of this speaks to is something I only mentioned in passing near the beginning of the message. The Lordship of Christ the Lordship of Christ and how His authority in our lives is reflected in how we relate to others. All of this is about the authority of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. How you treat your wife is about the authority of Christ. How you treat your husband is about the authority of Christ, your children, children, your parents. It's all about the authority of Jesus Christ. Will we respect the Lordship of Christ in these relationships? Now, remember this as well. Jesus said this about the final judgment. This is in Matthew chapter 25, but at the final judgment, Jesus is going to assess how we treated others. How we treat others is not going to help us get saved, but how we treat others is going to show whether or not we are saved. 
That's the essence of Matthew 25. Jesus is going to assess how we treated those on the margins, how we treated the vulnerable, how we treated the hurting. Did we treat them according to the gospel principles that we knew? Did we treat them consistent with our profession of faith? I'm a Christian, I have Christ in my life, and I'm treating you like Christ is in my life. And here's what Jesus said about that. And you're going to know the phrase as soon as I say it, but, but, but he said, when you've, when you've done this, when you've applied the gospel to your relationships, especially with those who are the least of these, he says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me, he said. You've done it unto me. And the solution for all of this, we've, we've just spent all this time talking through it, but the solution for all of this is in all of our relationships, when we look across to the other person, we're seeing Jesus in them. And so what we're doing, how we're relating, we've just got to do that to Jesus in our marriages, in our family relationships, in our friendships, in our neighborhoods. We need to see Jesus in the other person. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I, I do pray that you would help us with that this week, and I know there's going to be an onslaught of, of resistance to us following through on the things that we've heard here this morning from your Word. Father, our own flesh is going to war against it, and certainly the world system is going to have something to say to it. The, the prevailing culture is going to fight us on this. We're going to face all kinds of temptations to not obey the things that we've heard here today. But Father, I pray that you would help us. Where there needs to be repentance, I pray, God, there would be a, a willingness, a, a, a drive, a compulsion to repent and to make the changes that are necessary. Father, we would resist the devil and his influences and we would embrace the truth of your word, of your gospel, and that it would radically transform all of our relationships. And Father, that in each person in our life, from strangers to enemies, to neighbors, friends, and family, God, that we would see Jesus in each one. We pray this in his name.